Welcome to Stacktrace, the podcast that is all about life and technology from two developers' perspectives. And those two developers are me, John Sundell, and my good friend, Mr. Guy Rambo. How's it going, Mr. Rambo? Hi, John. Doing great. How are you? I am doing great as well. I have some of those happy feelings that you have after you've released a new project. Ooh, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder what it can be. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just released yesterday, as we record, a new open source library for the first time in a while. It's been quite a while since I open sourced a brand new project, which is always a lot of fun to do. I kind of have been pausing my open source efforts a bit over the past year or so because I've been focusing on other things. Of course, I've been always trying my best to keep everything up to date. And of course, when it comes to things like publish, I always make sure that runs really well because I use it almost every single day in production myself, <laughs> right? So yeah. of course, I make sure that things keep working. But in terms of launching like brand new projects, that's not something I've been really focused on for quite a while. So it's been really great to get back into that one more time. Yeah, uh, as I think we mentioned uh, multiple times, open source is not just about throwing stuff on GitHub and seeing if it sticks, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have to maintain stuff and uh, usually people are going to start using it, especially when it's a library. I feel like open sourcing a an app project, if it's not a commercial one, um, like uh, you talked to Christian uh, about his recent work uh, on your podcast and the problems he had open sourcing a commercial app. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole other problem. But I feel like open sourcing a library is a really tall order. If you plan on it actually being a library that people are going to use and that you are going to be using yourself and maintaining over time, it's a, a big commitment. Like it, uh, it, it really, it's really something that you should think carefully about before doing. Uh, and of course, again, feel free. Like if if you're listening and you have something that you think is cool and you just want to put it on GitHub, that's fine. But when you have this idea of actually releasing a, a full blown library for something, then there's a a little bit of a ceremony around that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. And uh, when it comes to this project in particular, which I'll talk a bit more in a second what it actually is, uh, I think I wrote more documentation than I actually wrote code. <laughs> I think if you actually like sum up all the lines of documentation, it's more than the code itself. And I also spent... I would say almost an equal amount of time on the documentation, on some of the testing that I wanted to do just to make sure that it doesn't just work for my particular needs, but that it's more of a general purpose tool that many people will be able to use. Like that sort of work is what I think makes a good open source project. Like when it's not just you lifted this code from your project and put it on GitHub. Like again, if you want to do that, great. Like I'm not saying that no one should ever do that. Like, you know, everyone can do what they want to do. But for me personally, like when I open source something, I want to make sure that it feels like a like a nice little product, right? Like something mm -hmm. where you have good documentation, you have good tests, you you know that it works as intended and so on, at least as much as possible that we can <laughs> kind of guarantee with testing and so on. Uh, and that it feels polished, like that's what I really want. And uh, th that's also why it typically takes a little bit longer time to kind of prepare the project for actually being open sourced uh, compared to what it actually takes to write the code for it. And part of that also is because I also know that because if I tweet about this, if I talk about it on this podcast and so on, like 
a lot of people will see this project and might consider using it. And that is amazing. Like, I'm always very grateful for that, that I have, you know, an audience that I can talk to and, and share things with and that people are excited to see what I'm doing and to, like, uh, read the source code and so on. Like, that is always a really, really wonderful feeling. And I'm really grateful for all of that. But that also means that if I don't do that work when it comes to documentation and structuring things well, adding tests and so on, then I'm also going to get a lot of questions. So part <laughs> of that work is also doing a little bit more work up front to kind of save myself some work in the long run, where, of course, I welcome people's questions always, you know, hashtag ask Stacktrace. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I love getting feedback from people and so on, but I just want to minimize the amount of kind of repeating frequently asked questions that I will need to answer over and over again just because I didn't document something. So that is also a big part of it. Yeah, you don't want to become a full-time support person for your open source library, right? <laughs> that, exactly. That yeah. doesn't scale, uh, obviously. Uh, and also something else I noticed when uh, I open source uh, some of this uh, similar work is that by the intention of open sourcing, I feel like the quality of the API and, and of course, the documentation and tests and things like that is higher than my internal only code do you feel something similar like you 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 kind of feel like you're exposing yourself a bit so people are going to see this i don't know who's gonna see this i want people to to feel like i'm a decent programmer so <laughs> let me do a good <laughs> job here of actually having a uh, clean uh, stuff and 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 fairly beautiful code and good documentation and tests and things like that uh, I, I always feel like when I open source something that I, I put a little bit ac extra effort into the code. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely want to make sure that it's going to be nice for other people to read and use and, you know, make it feel intuitive, make it feel like, you know, it all makes sense together, that it's uh, consistent when it comes to the APIs and so on. And I think a big part of that is uh, one thing I've been trying to train myself to do more and more, like especially over the last, let's say, 10 years or so as a developer, has been to, whenever I write some code that other people will see or work with, so whether that is an open source project, whether that is a client project, or back when I was employed and so on, like when I was working with a team every day, like whenever I write any code that goes into some context where other people is are going to maintain or work with that code in some way, I always try to think, before I submit a pull request or before I, I send a commit, I always try to think, how will other people view this code? Like, how would this look to someone who hasn't written this code, who hasn't maybe dealt with a specific problem that a code solves before? Like, I try as much as possible to, to kind of put myself in someone else's shoes to look at this from a different perspective. And of course, that is really hard to do because you always have your own kind of biases, your own background, your own knowledge about things. So it's really hard to like completely look at something from someone else's perspective, but you can try. And when you do that, I've found at least that I start to question some decisions and I start to polish things extra, like you just mentioned. And I kind of do that extra round of thinking where I think like, okay, would this API make sense to someone who is seeing it for the first time? Or would this documentation clearly explain what this method does? And I've just found that 
with open source and with closed source, like working with clients and so on, that really gives me a huge benefit. And that really makes me write, I think, better code in the end, even though it takes sometimes a little bit longer, like doing that extra thinking, but it also saves a lot of time because, for example, when I submit a pull request for review to a team that I work with, most often, like, the people then have, again, fewer questions. They have fewer remarks and comments because I already kind of thought about some of those comments beforehand just because I thought about it one more time before I submitted the pull request. Yeah, uh, there's a reason we call it a technical debt, right? Uh, it's because it's kind of like saving money. You don't spend money today in order to have more money in the future for when you actually really need it. And in terms of technical debt, it's kind of like the same thing. You are doing a little bit extra work now, but it will really pay off in the future when someone else has to maintain this or you yourself don't quite remember how this works. Uh, and uh, I, I, I've been uh, very glad that Rambo from the past has done this sort of work uh, before when I face some part of my code base that I haven't touched in, in a year or something and there is actual documentation there so I can see what it does and understand it a little bit better and, and not have to poke around too much. So I think it's always worth the effort. Of course, it's not always possible, but to the extent that's uh, viable, I think everyone should always try for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the kind of very clear examples that I can bring up here when I think this is really useful is when you're dealing with magic numbers. Oh, so yeah. when we're working with any sort of code, whether it's like UI code with animations or metrics, or it can be some kind of algorithm where you have different weights or multipliers or whatever it might be, like it typically involves having some form of input parameters that are constants, that are just magic numbers, as we sometimes call them, where you're putting some numbers sometimes inline in the code. For example, like an animation duration, you might just put like 0.25 seconds or something like inline within your UI code. And that is something that I always think about. Like when I see a magic number, when I write my own code, I always think twice about that. And I think mm -hmm. like, will this number really be self-explanatory? Or should I maybe extract it into a constant that I can then name? Maybe I should add a little code comment here so people can know like, what does this do? And again, people might be myself in the future, right? Because you forget things. Yeah. So I think, especially with like things like magic numbers, constants, or just anything else that, that isn't really self-explanatory. And thinking about that one more time before you submit that pull request, before you send that commit, I think it's just so valuable because it just adds that extra context that both you and other people can then really benefit from both now and in the future. Yeah, and it doesn't have to slow you down on iteration. Like uh, I usually don't do that stuff while I'm trying to solve a problem. I'll first solve the problem and input whatever the magic number is uh, in line. And then later I do my own code review on my own code, of course, and then I oh, there's a, a magic number here. Let me see if I can extract it to a constant or something. Uh, I am also a big fan of configuration structs. Uh, it's so easy to define structs in Swift. So I often will have a something something configuration struct uh, that has lots of uh, constants defined in there. And I'll have like a default static property that just defines like what whatever the default is and that actually makes things more flexible as well if for whatever reason in the future you want to change those settings or have different settings for different environments and things like that so 
I'm also a big fan of that approach. And with magic numbers specifically, I think I talked to you about this uh, a while back and you mentioned you do something similar. We often define properties or constants that are representing a unit of time. Uh, say you have like, oh, uh, every cached thing should expire in 30 minutes. So you'll have like cache duration. I always call it like cache duration in minutes or in right. hours or in days. Uh, and uh, I don't do it for seconds because I always use the time interval type for seconds. So if I see something that, it's, that is a time interval, I know that it's seconds. But any, anything else, I always include the units because I've been bitten before uh, in my uh, jobby job even uh, with something that was supposed to be seconds and someone thought it was minutes and you can imagine what happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, again, like if you just have a number, just a plain number, like it doesn't tell you much. So you have to know what the context is around that. Like what unit am I dealing with or what is this magic number for? And I really liked your... Uh, remark there on not thinking too much about it when you're iterating, and I completely agree with that. And that's why I think it's so important that before you send your pull request or send that commit, that you just look at the git diff, like look at your change that you've made from kind of a holistic perspective, and then you can go in and tweak things and polish certain things, add some documentation, uh, extract those magic numbers into constants, or add those parameter labels, or maybe even when it comes to time, like create separate types to represent things like minutes or hours and so on. You know, there are so many options that we have in Swift when it comes to how we deal with values and types and, and so on. So it's just about using those tools to make our code intuitive or make our code easy to understand. That's like, that's always the goal. Yeah, you wouldn't believe how many bugs I caught just by looking at my own git diffs before committing something. <laughs> or like yeah. a print statement forgotten somewhere. Like there, there's always something that you end up finding. Yeah, and I can always really tell when I work with people who don't do that because they will always, like, because we're all human, right? Like, I make mm -hmm. those mistakes, you make those mistakes, everyone does it, but I can really tell when I'm working with people, the people who actually look at their commit before they send it versus people who just send it as soon as they're done. <laughs> and I think you definitely want to be the person who reviews your own code before you ask other people to review it. It's just a common courtesy, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so now maybe we should talk about what I actually open sourced. <laughs> nice. And uh, that's a new library called Collection Concurrency Kit. Mm. And it's a very small library in the grand scheme of things. I, I mentioned that I think the documentation has more lines of code than the actual code itself. I, I think the, the there's only one source file and it's around like 300 something lines of code at the moment. And I think like 150 of those lines is probably documentation. So, you know, it's a, it's a very compact library and it's following the do one thing, but do it well kind of philosophy where I am keeping it very small in terms of the scope. I don't want the scope to grow. I don't want to add new features to it. I just want to keep it like it is and keep it just very stable, easy to use fix any bugs that might come up and so on, or evolve it over time, but not increase the scope. That's definitely my plan. So what does it do then? Well, it adds asynchronous and concurrent versions of for each map, flat map, and compact map to any Swift collection. So just like how you, when you are dealing with, for example, an array in Swift, and you want to map over the elements in that array to transform them into something else, for example, let's say you have an array of IDs and you want to load a model for each of those IDs. You could say 
array of IDs dot map, and then inside of that closure in map, you call database load object for ID, and you pass in that ID that map gave you. So the version that comes from the standard library, um, that is that map function and, and the other ones, they are all completely synchronous. So you can't call async APIs within that, like using the new async await syntax, and they are also not performed concurrently, which means that they are all performed like on the same thread where you call them completely synchronously, one after the other by default, right? Yeah. So what Collection Concurrency Kit does is just makes it so you can very easily call those same functions, so map, flat map, compact map, and for each, but either using the async prefix or the concurrent prefix. So you have async map, concurrent map, async flat map, and so on. And that just makes it incredibly easy to parallelize those iterations. So rather than just loading all of those objects from those IDs on the main thread, like completely synchronously, you could now either do it asynchronously if you would have your database vend an an asynchronous function instead of just a synchronous one. You could call that using a wait inside of your async map, or you can do a concurrent map and load all of your objects in parallel, which for certain kinds of operations can really speed things up. So it does all of this while still making the API very simple. Most of the time you will be able to just like replace a call to map with async map or con concurrent map and it will just work as the same way as before. Just put async in front. It fixes right. everything. <laughs> so easy. <laughs> and then the implementation takes care of doing things like ensuring that the order of your outputs is the same as the order of your inputs. So you wouldn't want like to give map like an array of let's say 100 IDs and then the models you get back are like in random order, like that wouldn't be useful. Yeah. So even when you do a concurrent map using collection concurrency kit, you get an array back that matches the one you provided. Ooh. So that just gives you a very, very nice kind of guarantee that, you know, you, you won't have to sort your data and stuff like that afterwards. You just have that nice relationship between your inputs and your outputs. So yeah, that's uh, what the new library does. Nice. Uh, and uh, I suspect this was a product of your work uh, on parallelizing publish, right? That's exactly correct. So how this all started, so we spoke last week about how I was working on a new concurrent version of publish, which utilizes this new Swift concurrency system, which we're going to talk about uh, in a lot more depth in just a second or maybe in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, and uh, when I was doing that work, I just found myself having to write the same kind of code over and over again. Because if you think about what is published, like my static site generator, it's kind of just one big data transformation engine mm -hmm. where it just takes like data that is on disk, like markdown files, images, and so on, and it transforms them into HTML, RSS feeds, podcast feeds, whatever you want, might want to build using it. And that is just like lends itself very well to concurrency to begin with. And it just meant that I had to write those kinds of mapping calls and for each calls and transforming that data synchronously in so many different places. And although there are tools for doing all of that stuff in the standard library, I just found that to be like a little bit more code than I would like at each individual call site. So I thought this is a good idea for an abstraction. And originally I just started creating those abstractions in Publish itself but then eventually I realized that this has nothing to do with the domain of publish at all. It's just very generic algorithms for data transformation. And that's when I realized that, you know what, I can just turn this into an open source library instead. And that way other people can also make use of it. 
And then I have this neat separation between the domain of publish and what publish uses it for and the library collection concurrency kit itself. Plus, I have already started adopting collection concurrency kit in three additional projects since <laughs> I released it as well. So, you know, I'm sure this is going to be kind of a very essential tool for me personally going forward as I continue to make more use of the new concurrency system. Yeah, and uh, what would you say is the main use case for uh, collection concurrency kits? Uh, what types of projects would benefit a lot from it? Just any project that's a big transformation engine? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. So I would say if you find yourself needing to do the same thing as I needed to, where you want to perform like mapping operations, like just like general data transformation or just iterating over collections and you want to do that concurrently using the new concurrency system, you might want to pull in collection concurrency kit because it just does all of that and it's heavily unit tested, you know, documented and so on. So you don't have to write that code yourself. And of course, if you if you do want to write that code yourself, you can do that. And like many of my open source projects, I know this is something that you really like, Rambo. It's a single file. Oh yeah. So if if you just want like a part of it or you just want like that file, you can just drag and drop it into your project. So, you know, there's a lot of flexibility here in terms of how you want to use it. And you might just need one of the functions from it. You can just take that and copy and paste it into your project. Of course, you know, please respect the license and, and give the right acknowledgements and so on in your in your documentation. But you know, other than that, it's a MIT license project, so it's very, very permissive. And uh, yeah, that's that's why I think people will find it useful for. At least that's what I think it will be useful for for me. Yeah, and uh, I suspect some people might be asking what the use case is for this, given that the built-in stuff handles uh, these cases. Like you can definitely iterate over an async collection. There's even async sequence and stream and stuff uh, built into Swift, but. Uh, the difference is that this is for doing that in parallel. So basically, quote, at the same time so that you can speed up those data transformation tasks, which is what you wanted to do with Publish. You wanted to be able to like render multiple markdown files uh, concurrently to take advantage of your M1 Max processor. Exactly. And uh, that's a very good uh, thing you brought up there around async sequence. So you're absolutely right that the Swift standard library provides a way to, to create sequences that are asynchronous. So they produce their values over time rather than producing them all at once, right? Or rather than producing them synchronously, they can produce them asynchronously. Yeah. And this is not that. So when you are using Collection Concurrency Kit, you are not turning your arrays and your dictionaries or whatever you're performing your mapping operations on into asynchronous sequences. They are still completely synchronous sequences. So this is a way to run asynchronous code and concurrent code on synchronous collections. So, you know, when you have arrays, sets, like the standard data type, the standard collections that we're all dealing with when we're writing Swift code, that's what you will still use when you're using collection concurrency kits. So you are running these async map and concurrent map and so on on your synchronous collections and you get synchronous collections back. So it's not a way to work with asynchronous sequences, but to work with synchronous ones, but still utilizing the concurrency system while doing so. Nice. 
Yeah, it's uh, been a lot of fun to build this. I've always wanted to write flat map, so <laughs> here we go. I got to write flat map, so that's good. Uh, life goals, <laughs> life goal achieved. Uh, but you know, joking aside, this was uh, it's fun to do. I hope that people will find it useful, and I also think this was a good exercise to do to uh, separate this from publish itself, just because once again I can use it in different projects and, and other people can as well. And speaking of the concurrent version of Publish, that is also now available for preview. There's nice. a pull request up on GitHub, which you can try out if you're running a published-based website. You can check out that branch and you can give it a go and let me know how what you think. If it runs faster, if there are any regressions or anything else, like any feedback is really appreciated. So we'll leave a link in the show notes for that too. Awesome. Cool. So that's been what I've been up to, Rambo, and uh, also a great discussion about open source. But now I want to hear about what you've been up to. I haven't been open sourcing much recently, but uh, I have been doing a lot of work uh, in everybody, as we've been talking about. People are probably tired of hearing about it. Uh, and uh, the, the thing is that I've been doing a lot of under the hood work, and uh, some of it has to do with the uh, paying off tech debt that we talked about. Uh, because I something I have to deal with uh, in, in everybody specifically is that my app supports all the way back to macOS Mojave. Uh, and the reason for that is that, first of all, I want uh, as many people as possible to be able to take advantage of the app. But also there's a, a selfish reason because that increases the market size for the app and... It makes me more money, of course. Well, those two things go hand in hand, right? Like yeah. if more users get access to the product, you make more money, but also <laughs> more people get to use the product. So it's a win-win. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so it makes sense for me to keep uh, supporting macOS Mojave. And with the uh, upcoming version 2.5, there are going to actually be some improvements specifically for older versions of macOS where... Uh, I was previously relying on the system to tell me uh, they, the data of your nearby AirPods and things like that, which meant that if you were running, say, macOS Mojave, but trying to use AirPods Pro, which didn't exist back when macOS Mojave was the latest macOS version, you wouldn't get the best experience. Uh, I think it wouldn't be able to show you the battery for the charging case. Uh, and uh, it, so... Basically, it didn't recognize the AirPods Pro charging case very well, and you wouldn't be able to engage transparency mode from the UI because transparency mode wasn't a thing. Uh, so I was relying a lot of on the system to tell me what the device had and the features that it supported. But now that I'm doing all of it by myself, basically, I have the ability to basically backport a lot of this functionality into older operating systems, which means that with version 2.5 of everybody, if you are on macOS Mojave, you will get the battery status for your AirPods Pro charging case. You will be able to toggle transparency mode on your AirPods Pro in macOS Mojave, which doesn't know about the existence of those features. But all of that means that I'm having to do a bunch of abstraction work, basically, because the underlying system components that I talked to have changed a lot since macOS Mojave, and there's been a big jump in, in the, the pace of change with macOS Monterey, where a bunch of stuff that I was previously using just stopped working on macOS Monterey, uh, and, which means that I basically have to have multiple implementations of the same thing for different operating system versions 
but I have to abstract the underlying implementation. So basically the quote system calls uh, in a way that I don't have to be dealing with those differences at uh, the higher levels of the um, of my internal API. And as you can imagine, that's uh, quite challenging. Uh, and as someone who, as we've established before, prefers to do more higher level work and then UI stuff, uh, I, I've been uh, suffering a bit. Uh, I mean, <laughs> suffering is not, yeah, I, I mean, suffering in a joking way, like I'm not actually suffering, don't worry, I'm fine. But it's like, it, it's not particularly enjoyable work for me, but I think the end results are going to pay off uh, in a big way. Like, as much as I sometimes enjoy looking at Bluetooth packet logs. It's not my favorite thing to do in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that's completely understandable. <laughs> and, you know, initially I would want to respond to that to say, well, I'm the complete opposite because I just said I finally got to write flat map <laughs> and that I was very excited about that. But, you know, I think for me at least, and I kind of get the feeling that it's the same for you, is that you like the variety, right? Like mm -hmm. you like to work on different things and that's kind of what's appealing about app development because that way we get to both work on the user interface, we get to work on the design, the animations and all that stuff. And we also get to work on kind of really low level things, at least every once in a while, where you know, since we're running native code and since we sometimes need to interact with system components or like in your case, you need to do this like really low level networking that is not just like calling some library, but actually figuring out what the individual bytes mean. Like that is a huge range of tasks, like different yep. domains you have to work with. And that is what I personally really love about app development. Like I love that one day I'm writing flat map and then the next day I'm tweaking some animation parameters. Like I just like that variety, and I do agree that when I have to work within the same domain for too long, like if I'm really working on a very advanced feature that needs to, you know, do a lot of database logic and that sort of thing, and I just, I just have to work on that for like several weeks, and, you know, it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you <laughs> don't have any UI manifestation of it yet because you're still working on it, so all you have is, like, your unit tests and so on, like, that can get a little bit boring, like if you have to do that for a long time. And, you know, I think that's that might be what you are feeling, right? Like yeah. that, that you've been just on the low-level side of things for too long and you wish that you would get back to the UI side, at least for a little bit, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the bright side, uh, I do have a few UI things I'm going to be doing, but I have to first, I have to eat my salad first before I get to <laughs> eat dessert. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I do have that uh, to, to do um, in, in the future. And I have... So the, the way I've um, kind of gotten myself in a, a better state of mind was to alternate between this uh, very low-level work and doing some design work because I currently can't really implement the UI stuff that I have to implement for this version uh, because it kind of depends on the underlying stuff. But I can fire up Sketch and design the UI in there. Uh, and uh, also, something that helps is Swift UI. Because mm -hmm. in the past, while doing this sort of work, I would probably just have like a, a command line interface to like verify my code or just tests and, and automated tests and things like that. But now I can actually build a little UI around the components that I am developing and actually 
get to see uh, a UI manifestation of my work. And I feel like that really helps uh, keeping me motivated to to keep working on that stuff. So uh, nice life hack there. Yeah, absolutely. And we've mentioned this many times before now, but this is another strength of SwiftUI where you might just use it during development to build those kind of UIs for yourself to make it easier to test your implementation because you mentioned that everybody works many versions back, including Mojave, which doesn't support Swift UI. So I guess this is not going to be your actual production UI, but it's like utilities you're building during development, which is something you can do with Swift UI because it's so fast to build those sorts of things once you kind of get used to the framework. Yeah, and uh, some of the systems that I work with are hard to actually debug in a meaningful way just by having Xcode attached and, and looking at uh, logs and things like that. Uh, for instance, the new Magic Handoff protocol, I I have to verify that uh, two machines are able to keep their state in sync and keep their connection to each other across multiple days and multiple sleep-wake cycles and things like that. Uh, so for that, like I wrote a little SwiftUI app where each machine has a number, like a, a random inter- integer that they send to each other and I can just look at each Mac and check that the number matches between them, basically. <laughs> uh, right. Which is way easier than looking at like days and days of logs and finding out if everything worked correctly uh, with a more complex system that's syncing multiple things. If this simple number thing is working, then I know that... If something is not working in the main app, then it means that it's not a problem with the underlying networking or the protocol itself. It's something that I'm doing in the app that, that like my usage of my implementation is is wrong somehow. Uh, so that's a, a good way to do it. But it's really hard because, like I mentioned, it's something where sometimes problems only manifest themselves after several days. So it, it's really tricky to, to debug, uh, but... That's how I, I solved it, basically. Yeah, that sounds really tricky. It's kind of like you're running like a days-long human-orchestrated unit test, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where you're just, like verifying these things yourself because you, of course, have to do it manually at least to some extent, but then you, you're building those utilities to help you. And I really agree that really helps the debugging process because for me, debugging is all about like isolating a certain problem down to like, okay, where is this actually occurring? So you start with many, many potential areas where the the problem could be happening, but then you're kind of using the process of elimination to say, okay, it's not happening here, it's not happening here. That must mean that this particular class or this particular part of the code base is what's causing the error. And it seems like, you know, utilities like this really help you do that kind of work. Yeah, definitely. So, um, been a, a bit tough uh, the, the work recently but I'm gonna get through it and uh, through um, many of the tech that uh, payoffs I've been doing in the past few months I do actually have at least one thing that I'm probably going to open source um, I am not going to open source it right now I kind of want to have this version shipped and in production for a while before I, I open source the thing so just so that i can say that it's production quality <laughs> right <laughs> so i do have a lot of beta testers using it and it seems to be fine but i have um, created a, a more swifty abstraction on top of uh xpc on mac os so xpc connection and 
uh, NSXPC connection and NSXPC listener because I I have uh, a, a few XPC services uh, on on everybody so that like the widget can can fetch data from the helper app because they the widget is completely sandbox and of course I'm not going to be doing Bluetooth low energy in the widget that would not be very efficient uh, so the way I do it is I, I talk to the helper app and and there are other things that rely on that uh, so um, XPC is fine uh, the the APIs that are built in are fine, but there's some boilerplate that you always have to do, and especially around ensuring that your connection to the other process is alive and, and making sure to reconnect if something goes wrong, which kind of happens automatically, but not really, depending on the scenario. So you always have to, to check that stuff. So I, I wrote a little, um, not that little actually, but it's, uh, it's not uh, as small as your library but it's also not huge and i also think that there's probably more documentation than code uh, as you mentioned uh so i will probably be open sourcing that so it's a more swifty abstraction on top of the uh underlying nsxpc api awesome that sounds great looking forward to reading that code and to maybe using it in future projects that sounds really really useful like anything we can do to make the APIs we need to interact with, especially when it's more lower level code, like easier to use from Swift, like to make that more kind of fluid. I think it's definitely a really, really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you actually helped me a bit. Uh, I asked you some questions because there's some tricky stuff I had to do around being able to have a generic that's a protocol, but it has to be an NS object protocol but you have to give it the protocol itself and not something that implements the protocol. So it's a, it's a bit tricky because for NSXPC stuff, you have to give it uh, an actual protocol uh, type, basically, for it to, to talk to the other sides. And it was a bit tricky to figure out how to do that because in Objective-C land, which is where this stuff comes from, it's just a protocol. It doesn't matter what protocol it actually is. But of course, in Swift, I wanted to do it in a more type-safe manner. So it, it was a bit tricky to figure that out. And um, I think I came up, uh, at, and you helped me come up with a solution that's the best it can be uh, while still interfacing with these old APIs. Yeah, that's awesome. Very happy to help. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing the, the library go online on GitHub at some point. Awesome. Great. So now let's dive into this episode's deep dive, which will be about Swift's new concurrency features, because we've talked about them quite a bit now, both on this episode and on previous episodes. So I thought it would be really useful just to focus on what the new concurrency features are and how we're planning to use them. But before we jump into that topic, let's take a very quick break to thank this episode's first sponsor. This week's episode of Stack Trace is brought to you by Shortcut, the project management tool that was built specifically for software teams. Find out much more and get an extra long two-month free trial by going to shortcut.com slash Sundell. Now, ask yourself, have you ever been really happy with your current project management tool? 
The reality that many software development teams find themselves in is that most project management tools are either too simple to keep up as a project grows in scale, or they're too complex, which makes them frustrating and time-consuming to use and update. And that's where Shortcut, which used to be called Clubhouse, is very different, because it was built specifically for software teams, with a fast, flexible, and powerful user interface that's delightful to use, while still giving you a ton of options to customize it to fit the way you and your team works. As a few examples, besides being great at organizing tasks, Shortcut gives you a way to easily visualize company-wide goals and roadmaps. It features tight integration with version control platforms like GitHub, GitLab, and Bitbucket. It's got a keyboard-friendly UI with a power bar that lets you perform all sorts of operations directly using keyboard shortcuts. And it can even automatically organize your team's schedule based on the priorities of each task in the backlog. Try Shortcut for yourself by starting your completely free two-month trial at shortcut.com slash Sundell. But you gotta use that URL, which also supports this podcast, by the way, since that's how you will get this special extended two-month trial. Once again, that's shortcut.com slash Sundell. Just give it a go and see what it's like not having to project manage your project management tool. Thanks a lot to Shortcut for sponsoring this week's episode of Stack Trace. All right, Rambo, so now let's start diving into Swift's new concurrency system and the language features that it gives us access to. And to kick things off, I wanted to ask you a question because mm. you've mentioned several times on this podcast that you're the kind of programmer who sees code as kind of a tool to build products, right? Like you're not too focused on like the code level details. Of course, you know, we just talked about technical depth and API design and all sorts of things that you, I know you care about a lot as well, but, you know, fundamentally your your end goal is always to like focus on building the actual products. And, you know, that's true for me also, like, especially when it comes to the different client work that I do or, you know, my own pro- projects that I build, I, I always focus on actually building the product and the language features are just tools to build the thing I want to build. But given that I feel like you are even more so than me kind of just like focused on the product side of things and not as much on the kind of language features side of things, which of course I am also very focused on because I write Swift by Sundell. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, what do you think about these new concurrency features? Like how are you planning to start adopting them? You know, do they make you excited? How do you kind of feel about all of this now coming into the language? Yeah, of course uh, I do uh, because like everything you said is is perfectly true. Uh, and this is a tool that's going to make it easier to do some of the things that I have to do in order to create the, to create the products that I want to create. So uh, absolutely, I, I am really excited about the new concurrency stuff. Uh, we've all been using concurrency in one way or another with completion handlers and, and uh, even delegation and things like that, other t- types of protocols. Uh, and this is just a nice syntax on top of, of the old concurrency stuff. Of course, there's a lot of under-the-hood changes and things like that, but uh, like we've established, I don't really care about that. What I care about is that there's a, a better syntax that's going to make my life easier, and I think it's going to also make the lives of many uh, Swift developers easier in, in the long run, especially now that we'll be able to back-deploy this all the way back to iOS 13. So I think this is... Uh, 
a significant change and uh, it's going to be a tool that allows us to build the things we want to build uh, in a nicer way, in a more easy to work with way. Yeah, absolutely. So the Swift concurrency system is quite large. Like there's quite a large number of features. There's many different new abstractions to learn about, like everything from async await to actors to async sequences that we mentioned earlier and, and much, much more. So how have you been starting to dive into this now, now that you're kind of looking into like, how can I use this new system to build better products? Like you said, like, what are some of the features that you've been focusing on learning first? So I learned the basics of async await uh, and also the how to work with async sequences and streams because I feel like those are the things that are going to make uh, a bigger difference in my, my line of work. Uh, I've actually just started uh, last week on a new branch in the multi-peer kit uh, repo. If you want to leave a link in the show notes, we can do that. Uh, it's the Swift concurrency branch, and I've added a new API that's based on async stream so that you can basically for await on a sequence of peer events in order to be notified when new peers are found or connected or dis- disconnected and things like that, which before relied on setting several different completion handlers on the um, uh, transceiver, which is the main object of multi-peer kit. So I am uh, using that. Uh, I haven't even looked at actors. I know conceptually what they are, but I haven't even looked at them yet. But I'm definitely going to be looking into that in the future. And uh, we mentioned uh, about my current OS support the fact that concurrency is going to be back deployable uh, all the way to iOS 13 and uh, Catalina is probably what's going to make me drop support for macOS Mojave in the near future with AirBuddy, which is my main product. Uh, So that's my current plan. I'm probably going to be dropping it because of the concurrency stuff, because I feel like it can be a huge boost in, in my productivity and the types of features that I can develop And I don't see a way of easily adopting it in just a few corner places. Uh, I I really want to adopt it for real uh, in my whole code base. Of course, where it makes sense, not like everything is going to be async now, but (laughs) I do deal with a huge amount of async stuff. You can imagine it's all basically networking and it's all basically networking in this app so it's a lot of um, a lot of uh, async stuff and I feel like the new constructs we got are going to make my life a lot easier and are going to allow me to make things more reliable and implement better uh, things around the existing functionality so I am planning on dropping macOS Mojave uh, shortly after I ship version 2.5. Yeah and those are decisions we sometimes have to make where if we gain access to some new development tool that just is going to make our work so much easier, that might sometimes be worth dropping an earlier OS version, especially if you left that version of the app in a good state and you could also like check out that branch that you left there for you know the, the last version that worked on that operating system. You could always check that out and maybe do a hotfix or something like that for that operating system, especially on the Mac where you have more flexibility to ship things as you'd like, especially yeah. with 
something like AirBuddy, which is not in the Mac App Store, at least not yet. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that makes total sense, and I would probably make the similar trade-off. Uh, it was very hard for me before when it was supposed to be only for iOS 15 because that would be a much harder choice to make, <laughs> like uh, only going to iOS 15 for certain apps, and that's not something that many of my clients would agree to or something I would even suggest to them because it wouldn't be good for the business, and, and that is always the most important factor, right? It's like the overall impact on the business, positive and negative, is what you have to take into account. You have to balance the additional productivity you might get from this new tool versus what you might lose from dropping that OS version. And, you know, only going to iOS 15 would be kind of a deal breaker for me and many of the projects that I work on. So that's why it's so good now that it's going to be uh, backward compatible all the way back to iOS 13 because most of the projects I work on are either iOS 13 or iOS 14 as the minimum version. So then, you know, I, I can now use Swift Concurrency, which I have started to do. I already started before. I think we might have mentioned it on a previous episode that I the, one of the first things I used the concurrency system for was to add support for pull to refresh uh, in some of the lists, Swift UI lists that I was working on. And that is something I could do completely additive. So that didn't require me to, you know, convert my entire app into async await because that was just <laughs> like one method call that I need to add an async version of. And that is certainly a way to start adopting the system, I feel like. Like you can add these specific async functions here and there that you can then call from a concurrent context. But to your point, like this is one of those tools where you kind of want to start moving to it in a more broader sense. And it doesn't mean that everything will be async, like you said. And also it doesn't mean that you have to like rewrite your combine-based code or your completion handler-based code or whatever to async await. It just means that you might want all of your kind of APIs eventually to be at least compatible with async await because you might want to call them from different places and then it's going to be kind of tricky if one of them is async and one of them is not. So, you know, it's going to be like that for a while as you kind of are working on this and as you are migrating, probably. But I think, at least for me, the end goal will be to have all of the kind of interfaces between the different, like, components within my apps, like, that those communicate with async await. And then internally, uh, a certain class or something might use combine or might use something else to drive its logic because it was already doing that or because combine is a great tool for this particular thing or whatever the reason might be. But, you know, over time, I will probably want to migrate to async await as the kind of communication method between all of the different parts of my code base. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's also something that I definitely plan on doing. And in my case, with the uh, dropping Mojave, which would be equivalent to iOS 13, uh, to iOS 12, I mean, I can also uh, use SwiftUI in more places as well, even right. though I won't be able to use the more advanced features that have been introduced recently. As we talked about before, uh, there are so many things in SwiftUI that improve due to Swift itself and the, the tools and not SwiftUI as it's embedded in the operating system. So even when I do some SwiftUI work that needs to work all the way back to Catalina in my case, I rarely miss some of the new features. Like, of course, there are new controls and things like that, but it's mostly like basic stuff that I'm doing with SwiftUI for my app. I recently added a, a new uh, UI that's a very accessory type thing that's basically editing an underlying model with standard macOS controls and I tested it in Catalina and it works perfectly fine. So I I have that uh, advantage as well. So 
yeah, definitely looking forward to to using this new stuff uh, in conjunction with SwiftUI even. Yeah, that sounds really good. So I thought another thing that would be very interesting to talk about here is concurrency versus asynchronous code. Yeah. So with async await, that gives us a tool to mark a function or even a property as async, which requires us to call it using await. And the benefit of that is that within that async function or property, we can then await other things. So if you're performing like a network call, there's a function on URL session for that, which is not backward compatible, but uh, I have an article that we can leave a link to in the show notes that explains how to make those kinds of APIs backward compatible yourself. So that is certainly possible. But inside of your asynchronous function, you can then call another asynchronous API, await that, and then maybe do something with the result, await that. And then you have this kind of chain of operations that happens sequentially. And that is all asynchronous, but it's not necessarily concurrent. And that's where this difference comes in, where your networking code will certainly be concurrently running in relation to the other code in your app. So you're not going to block the main thread while you're performing the network call. That's the whole reason for doing it asynchronously in the first place. But it doesn't mean that you are performing like all network calls in your app like completely concurrently and that you're iterating over your data concurrently, for example. So like I mentioned earlier with Collection Concurrency Kit, there are two variants of each of the functions that it provides. There's async map and concurrent map, where async map happens asynchronously, so you can use asynchronous APIs inside of your map closure, but each transformation will still happen in sequence. So if you run it on five elements, you will first transform the first one, then the second one, third, fourth, fifth. But if you run it concurrently, you're transforming all five at once, and then you're just waiting for the end result to come back in order to form that final array. So I just thought that was an an interesting point just to bring up here because I feel like that can be a little bit confusing sometimes, especially if you haven't done a ton of concurrent or asynchronous programming before. It's like, what is the difference between the two? And and hopefully that kind of explains it. Yeah, when we talk about performance, there are, uh, I feel like there are two things we call performance. There's how much, uh, in terms of resources, your process is using, and there's the perceived uh, speediness of your uh products, your app, your command line tool, whatever. Uh, so in the case of the work you did with Publish by uh, making things run in, in parallel, which ended up resulting in the Collection Concurrency Kits uh, project that we talked about, um, you are not actually making things use less resources. In fact, uh, you're actually making it use more resources in a way because it's probably going to be spreading the work uh, uh, in more CPU cores. But from the perspective of the user, it's faster. So is it more performant? Yes. Uh, Is it using less resources? No. Uh, And it's always a a balance that you have to achieve with those things. I, I feel like in most cases, especially if we're talking about one of the new Macs with a bunch of uh, CPU cores, if you can uh, use those CPU cores for less time but use more of them, you're making things more more performant from the perspective of the user. Yes, if you look at Activity Monitor, instead of using 100% CPU for a couple of seconds, you're going to be using 700% CPU for... 0.1 second, but it's better <laughs> from from a user's perspective. So yeah, uh, it, there is a, a big difference between 
concurrency versus asynchronous. And I, I feel like in, in case of asynchronous code, you're trying to achieve a better perceived performance in terms of your UI won't lock up while you're doing an operation and uh, the user won't notice that it was happening uh, if it's fast enough. But in terms of concurrency, you're trying to use the most of the resources that are available to you in order to perform a task more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good explanation. And to kind of just further illustrate this, if I would go into the new concurrent implementation of Publish and replace all calls to concurrent map with async map, it would actually be slower than the single-threaded version. <laughs> because to your point, like that jump that you have to do over to that concurrent context is not free. It's it's very highly optimized. It's like a very low-level language feature. So you don't have to worry about it too much. But still, you know, anytime you jump over to a new context in terms of code execution, that does cost something, right? It's yeah. not completely free. And if you're just running like I'm doing in publish, uh, you know, before, if you're just running this series of steps, like if I'm publishing Swift by Sundell, which involves, I think, 42, 43 different publishing steps, and I just run them like one by one by one, if I do that asynchronously or synchronously, it doesn't matter because overall it's a synchronous operation, right? Like it yeah. happens one after the other. So the speed increase in this case really just comes from parallelizing the individual operations. Like if I need to iterate over a thousand markdown files, I can do that in parallel concurrently while still keeping like the overall publishing pipeline completely synchronous, right? And that's yeah. kind of where the benefit comes. Yeah, I feel like any iOS developer who's been doing this for a while will know for a fact or at least be able to very easily verify the fact that this uh, context switch has a cost. Just look at how many things we fix by doing dispatch async main queue in order <laughs> to, to do something. Like, it's... Uh, it's very little overhead, but it's enough where it's going to make your thing happen, say, in the next iteration of the run loop. Uh, it's it's enough of a delay that it actually fixes some problems. So, yeah, there's definitely a, a cost to, to using this stuff. Nothing comes for free. There's no free lunch in asynchronous code. Uh, so you do have to keep that in mind. Uh, again, most most of the time it won't really matter, but uh, it's uh, one of those cases where if you're doing a tight loop or something that happens very frequently, you do have to keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So Rambo, you mentioned earlier that you're working on this new version of Multipeer Kit, which uses uh, asynchronous sequences and streams. And you also mentioned that you've been you know, exploring the new concurrency features in, in other contexts as well. And eventually then, when you are consuming any kind of asynchronous API, unless you're building your whole system as one big kind of asynchronous system, then you're going to need to, at some point, jump back to the synchronous world. So mm -hmm. how have you done that so far? Is that what you use task for? <laughs> that is what you use task for. Yeah, I uh, I feel like I know more than I thought I did right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, what I've been using. Uh, actually, in the test uh, code that I wrote for this new implementation, uh, I do use task. Uh, there's probably a better way to run my tests uh, for async calls. Actually, I would love to hear your feedback, or I could probably just read your tests for the new library and, and learn how to do that. But 
I was kind of in a pinch, so I, I used the tools that I, I knew how to use, which is expectations, and uh, I used task in order to detach the uh, asynchronous uh, context in order to run my tests. But uh, yeah, you use task. Yes, absolutely. So tasks, they represent like a unit of asynchronous work, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to kick off some asynchronous work, you would create a task, and you can either detach a task, which creates a new top-level task, or you can create a new just task with a closure, and that will inherit the asynchronous context from where it was created. So if you're creating like a series of tasks that all kind of belong in the same kind of overall bigger task, then you would just <laughs> like create a new task. So detach is something I think you should use sparingly. It's only to create this like more top level tasks that you want to run completely independently from the code that called it. Um, so th yeah, that's absolutely what you will use tasks for. And, and the, the benefit then is you can call async functions using await within your tasks. And then when you're done, you can call some kind of completion handler or delegate or something to kind of get out of that asynchronous context and back to your synchronous code. So that's a pattern that I've used a lot is that you create a task and in the closure, you perform your await. So you await this network call, you await this database fetch or whatever. And then at the end of the task, like as the last line, you call a completion handler and then you're back to your own code, right? Your own, your own synchronous code, like your view model or your controller or wherever you're calling this code from. So I think that is in general like a, a nice way to bridge the gap between the synchronous world and the asynchronous world. Uh, there's also continuations as well, which where I mentioned earlier that you can make uh, certain APIs that were previously completion handler based, you can make them async await compatible. And that's something that you can do with continuations where you could say with checked continuation, and then you get a closure with a continuation object passed in, you can perform your operation and then you could say continuation dot resume or dot return throwing error. I, I don't remember exactly what the syntax <laughs> is, but you know, again, we leave a link in the show notes to an article that explains more. And that way you can call your API that uses some other abstraction, like a closure, for example, and then you can just bridge that into async await so that at the call side, you can just await that call just as if it was a normal asynchronous function and it all kind of happens under the hood for you. Nice. Regarding what you asked there earlier around testing, so I have good news and bad news for you, Rambo. Mm. <laughs> so the good news is if you want to run your unit tests on Apple's platforms, then you can actually make your test functions async. Ooh. So you don't have to have a task inside of your test method. So if you have like test... Uh, connecting multi-peer object. <laughs> you know, that, that's the name of one of your tests. The I name of the test, up. I'm looking at it right now is, um, and let me clear my throat here. <clears throat> test async event stream continues with each peer event. That's the name. Right. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> so if you wanted to test some asynchronous code within that function, you can just mark it as async. And mm. then you can just call your methods inside and the system will all take care of it for you. So you don't need to create manual tasks inside of your test methods, which is really great, right? Yep. Uh, you can also make them throw as well, which you've been able to do since many versions back now. Yeah, that I knew. I'm not that bad at unit testing. <laughs> well, I, I still talk to people like all the time who don't know that, and I'm not blaming them. Like It's not yeah. super easy to discover, right? Yeah, because... I, I took a really long time to figure that out, and I think I figured it out because I saw it in your code. <laughs> right, <laughs> and I just discovered it by accident, so you know that that's all great. Um, anyway, but I said there was bad news, and that is if you currently want to run your unit test on Linux or some other non-Apple platform, then that currently does not, at the time of the recording, support async testing functions. Wait, there are other platforms? 
<laughs> well, there are. <laughs> and so, for example, in Collection Concurrency Kit, I needed to use my own you know, tasks and expectations, like you mentioned. I wrote a little abstraction for that, so I didn't need to do that in every single test case because I want to run on Linux as well, right? So if you want to do that at the moment, you do have to use expectations still, but if you're only unit testing on Apple's platforms, you can just mark your test functions as async and everything is taken care of for you. Nice, yeah, so I can definitely do that because obviously multi-peer kit is uh, Apple platforms only at the moment. I don't think Apple plans to port multi-peer connectivity to Linux anytime soon, so uh, I think I'll be fine there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, so I feel like we have one big thing left to talk about when it comes to concurrency, and that is actors. But how about we postpone that to next episode? What do you mm. think, Rambo? Because I feel like... I'm not trying to create a cliffhanger here. Well, not only. <laughs> but I feel like it's like a bigger topic, and I would also love to talk about like when versus when not to use an actor. I feel like that is a really important part. And I also really want us to answer and ask Stacktrace questions. So, you know, trade-offs. So how about we leave that for next episode? What do you think? Yeah, let's uh, do that asynchronously. <laughs> oh, I love what you did there. Let's await the actor's topic. <laughs> oh, oh, I love that. <laughs> awesome. So let's now answer and ask Stacktrace question. But before we do, let's take a very quick break to thank this episode's second and final sponsor. This week's episode of Stacktrace is also brought to you by our good friends at RevenueCat, the tool that makes implementing in-app purchases and subscriptions super easy. Subscription-based apps are very popular these days, as they provide ongoing revenue to you as a developer, which can really help you build a more sustainable business. But actually, implementing high-quality in-app purchases and subscriptions can be really difficult. There are so many things that you have to keep in mind, from actually writing the code to perform an in-app purchase, to receipt validation, analytics, and more. And if your app supports multiple platforms, such as iOS and Android, for example, then you and your team have to implement the same complex logic twice. That's why so many developers around the world love to use RevenueCat. It handles all the pain points of in-app subscriptions so that you can focus on building new features that matter to you and your users. They have all the tools you need to quickly set up and manage any in-app purchase model from simple purchases to complex cross-platform subscriptions. With RevenueCat's native SDKs for iOS, macOS, Android, Flutter, Unity, and more, you can rest easy knowing that you have accurate in-app purchase data that is always verified and kept up to date with the app stores. With iOS 15, Apple introduced StarKit 2 with lots of improvements both at the API level and some new features. By using RevenueCat's iOS SDK, you can get the benefits from using the new StarKit system on supported devices without having to worry about backporting, since the SDK will handle all of that for you. You can get started with RevenueCat completely for free. They have great, affordable plans available for all kinds of company and team sizes, even if your team is just yourself. So check out RevenueCat today and join the thousands of developers who currently generate over a billion dollars of revenue per year through RevenueCat by going to RevenueCat.com. Like I mentioned, it's completely free to get started without any time limits, so you can check it out to see how it'll work for your project. Once again, that's RevenueCat.com and the link is also going to be in the show notes. 
Thanks so much to RevenueCat for sponsoring this episode of StackTrace. All right, Rambo. So, of course, we can't wrap up the episode without doing Ask StackTrace. We're really trying to fit that in every episode, even though we have a lot of things to talk about, because we love to answer your questions. So just to recap, you're always very welcome to ask us questions about anything. It can be about code, it can be just about what we're doing, or, or anything else, uh, or just random questions, or about linguistics, or anything you want <laughs> us to answer. Uh, you can just tweet with the hashtag AskStackTrace, or you can email us at stacktrace at 9to5mac.com and we will answer your question on a future episode. And someone who has asked us a question for this week's episode is Daniel. And Daniel says, Rambo has dozens of devices. That's a given fact. Well, can't disagree there, right? Yeah. <laughs> How does he manage to organize everything? How does he tidy several laptops, iPhones, iPads? Does he keep them all in drawers or in piles? Rambo, how do you organize your devices? The short answer is I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so the Rambo Device Museum is not this pristine, beautifully organized hall of fame that I thought it was? Not yet. Uh, so the thing is, I moved uh, fairly recently, as uh, we talked about before. And uh, of course, my office here at the new place was one of my top priorities, and it, it still is. That's why I don't have my herbs planted yet, uh, but I, I will have that done uh, before the end of the year, hopefully. Um, I So, uh, you know, John, uh, you're a homeowner. When you, you have your home, or even if you just move places, there's always a project, right? You always have a, a next project in the lineup for your home. And of course, other things end up uh, being prioritized over these uh, things. So I, I have a bunch of things here that I want to do. And the only thing I managed to do so far was to do the bar project that I wanted. I love your priorities, Rambo. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also I wanted uh, to uh, put like a bunch of fractures in a, a shelf that, that's here and a bunch of other things. But yeah, uh, I basically keep them iPhones and Apple Watches and other things in drawers and notebooks in piles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great organization system there. So actually, it turns out that maybe I have a better system of organizing than you do at the moment. Well, it could be both because I have lived in my current apartment for a little bit longer than you. And of course, also because I have fewer devices. <laughs> so, you know, I have a bunch of devices that I use for testing and so on. We've talked about that before. Uh, and I typically keep them like in a specific shelf, just like, uh, and I also really important for me is that that shelf is completely closed. So it's not open where just all these devices will gather dust because that would mean I would have to go and clean them like every week or something, you know, because I have a dog who sheds a lot of hair. So, oh. you know, I need to make sure to protect the things that I don't want to get too dusty, uh, you know, in a in a sealed space, so to speak. Uh, so I do keep my devices in just like a, a cabinet, like a, in a in a shelf, and I just like I don't organize them in any more way than like here's some iPhones, here's like some old iPads that I use for testing, here's like an old laptop that I sometimes use for some testing and things like that. And you know, my Mac Mini is currently here sitting on the desk. And I, I am still using it from time to time, but eventually I might also move that into that same cabinet, but I will still keep it powered on because I would like to keep using it as a server and just to be able to remote access it and so on. So that's that's kind of my general strategy. I 
would recommend to, even if you don't have a dog, like try to find some kind of drawer or some space that is not out in the open because it just makes it so much easier to not have to clean your devices all the time. Especially if you are like me where, you know, I don't like things to get too dusty. So I I clean my apartment a lot and my Roomba helps a lot with this task. <laughs> but, you know, I, I try to keep things clean. And one way to, to really do that is, of course, to, you know, have things not all out in the open. Yeah. And to be completely clear, like I don't have dozens of laptops. I have three, actually. So, yeah, I only have my M1 MacBook Air. Uh, actually, no, I was counting my Mac Mini as a laptop. No, that's not a laptop. So I have only two. I have my M1 MacBook Air and I have an old MacBook Air that I use to test old operating system versions. So those are, the pile is not too high. So we have an equal number of computers then. So yeah. that makes sense. Computer computers, not other types <laughs> of computers. What's a computer? Exactly. <laughs> Cool. So thanks a lot for that question, Daniel. And now let's answer a question from a person who calls themselves passionate iOS dev on Ooh, Twitter. Love the passion. Yeah, a lot of passion. Uh, so this person asks, should I start using a mechanical keyboard instead of the Apple Magic Keyboard? And, you know, we get questions that are phrased in a similar way from many people, which is like, what is the best X or should I do X? And these are always hard for us to answer because, well, we don't know you, right? So we don't know if you prefer X, Y, or Z. But I think we could use this question as a way to just answer, do we currently use a mechanical keyboard? Do we not? Why and why not? So why don't you go first, Rambo? Are you currently using a mechanical keyboard? I am currently not using a mechanical keyboard. I used a Keychron K2 for a while, and that was, I believe, recommended by you, right? Yes, and we should disclose that they're not a sponsor, but they did send me that keyboard for free. Yeah, so um, uh, I, I bought a Keychron K2, and I liked it. I liked the mechanical feel, but I had two issues uh, with it. The first one was that it didn't report its battery level to the operating system, so I couldn't know when the battery was about to run out. So it happened a couple of times that it ran out in the middle of me doing some work. And even though it's just a matter of plugging it in, you can use it plugged in, it's less than ideal. Uh, and also the battery life itself was not that great for me. It will last like about a week, which I think is not very good for a keyboard. And also, I had a problem where I was constantly hitting by accident the home and end keys at the right side of the keyboard. They're close to the arrow keys. Uh, so I could probably adjust to that, but I used it for several weeks and I kept accidentally hitting them to the point where I removed those keycaps from the home and end oh, key. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and and that, that helped a lot. And uh, But what finally did it for me was when Apple released the standalone Magic Keyboard with Touch ID, because even though I use my Apple Watch to unlock and I, uh, Apple, the Apple Watch authentication on macOS does work fairly well, I still prefer to have Touch ID on the Mac. Uh, so I switched to the Magic Keyboard with Touch ID. Uh, so even though I like the mechanical feel and uh, I... I understand why people are so much into mechanical keyboards. It's definitely something that's really cool and uh, you can get very different keyboards and uh, different ergonomic keyboards and things like that. I am sticking with uh, the Magic Keyboard for now. Yeah, that makes sense. So my current setup is I still use that Keychron K2 that they sent me and I really like it. I really, really like it. I've been using it now for, I think it's like more than a year and it's been 
working out really, really well. Like I, I love the feel of it. I have the brown switches. I am not bothered by the proximity of the end key as you were. Like I actually find that that's a feature more than a bug where I am using those keys a lot, like to go to like the beginning of a file or, you know, page up, page down when reading as well. Like, like I used to do on Windows, like way, way back in the day. So yeah, that's that's very cool. You, you know, there's something about the muscle memory uh, of using the Keychron that actually threw me off for the first few days because when I'm using that type of keyboard, my brain kind of goes into PC mode. <laughs> so ah, right. I was uh, trying to use control instead of command to do things and doing like Windows type uh, commands, even though I haven't used a PC in a really long time. But uh, I guess muscle memory really sticks. Yeah, and and it's funny because what we now call mechanical keyboards, like I think when both of us started getting into computers and we were using Windows when we were younger, those were just keyboards. Yeah, right? exactly. Like we didn't call them <laughs> mechanical keyboards. So I do I do see where you're coming from, and you know I also felt that like oh this feels like very retro, right? To type on this yeah. kind of keyboard. But I find it really pleasant to use a mechanical keyboard when typing, both when writing articles. Also, when writing uh, code and so on, like I use it all the time. And uh, now, also when I have my new MacBook Pro, I also use the built-in keyboard of the MacBook Pro quite a bit as well, and that is also really nice. It's a different feel, but it's also nice. I prefer the mechanical keyboard personally, but you know, it's for being a laptop, and when I'm sitting somewhere else and working, it's just fantastic for for being so compact. And the Touch ID situation I've solved by. I have the MacBook Pro sitting here next to me open, so I'm not really a clamshell user anymore, Rambo. I'm kind of migrating more to the dual screen lifestyle here. <laughs> sometimes I do keep the screen completely dimmed, though, because I don't want to be distracted by it. But sometimes I will just keep like the documentation window there or my email or Slack or whatever, like just as a kind of separate window. Uh, and also then I have access to Touch ID, which is really, really useful. So when I need to authenticate, I just reach over and touch the Touch ID button on the MacBook Pro. So that works out really well for me as well. Nice. But I do agree with you that one big downside of certain third-party keyboards in general is that they are not as well integrated with Apple's operating systems as the Magic Keyboard is. So you mentioned the battery level there. That is definitely like a downside of using something like the Keychron K2. And I'm sure that other keyboards have a similar problems as well, that they don't automatically report their battery level so you can see it in the operating system. Uh, the way I kind of solved this is I've solved this in a similar way to how I've solved the magic mouse charging problem, which, you know, is that you have to put the charger for the mouse, like, you know, by turning it upside down, like, which is very infamous at this point. <laughs> yeah. So what I have now is I have Friday charge time, which means that mm. when I stop working on Fridays, these days I'm trying to do computer-free weekends as much as possible. So when I stop working on Friday, I typically send off like test flight betas to my customers. I send off the different emails that I need to do. I, you know, send things on Slack. I just basically wrap up the week on Friday afternoon. And what I do then is, and this also encourages the computer-free weekend, by the way, is I plug in the charger for the keyboard and I plug in the charger for the mouse. And that way, when I have some urge to go and maybe hack on something in the weekend, <laughs> I go to my desk and I see these devices like the mouse lying upside down and the keyboard charging. And I think maybe I should do something not on the computer today, you know, <laughs> and that has really kind of helped me to fully relax on weekends and do something different than coding all the time, which, you know, it's it's very something that I think a lot of programmers like to do and I do as well. But I really try these days to, you know, spend the weekends doing something completely different and then on the, the week, I code as much as I possibly can. So that's just my Friday charge time tip here for anyone else who are, is in a similar situation. 
Awesome. Excellent. So this has been a really fun episode of Stack Trace. We managed to cover a lot of different topics, I feel like. We talked about concurrency, open source, keyboards, device management, all sorts of things, right? And of course, all of your interesting work that you keep doing on AirBuddy. And hang in there, Rambo. I'm sure that you're going to get back into the wonderful land of UI development very soon. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So all that remains is for us to thank our two great sponsors for this episode, which were Shortcut and RevenueCat. If you check out either of those two sponsors using the links that are in the show notes, then you're really helping support our podcast, which we would, of course, really appreciate. Uh, other ways to support this podcast include sharing it, for example, on Twitter, you know, tweeting your favorite episode or a clip or something that is always really helpful and also really motivating for us to see. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like to, if you would like to give us a nice review there. Uh, but regardless, if you're just listening to the show and enjoying it, then that is also awesome as well. So thanks so much for listening and we will talk to you again next week. So say goodbye, Mr. Rambo. Goodbye.